This is the Sea to Sky podcast with Marcus and Alan, weaving through the issues in Sea to Sky country. Welcome to another episode of the Sea to Sky podcast. My name is Marcus, here with Alan, with Mayor Candidate Karen Elliott. How oh, are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Good morning. Yeah, we're good. good. Thank you for inviting us uh, into your home. And, and uh, thank you to your husband, Sean, for the lovely coffee. These are amazing coffees. He is a coffee artist, that's for sure. I'm so lucky. And uh, yeah, and he was saying how we, you guys get local beans, so now I'm going to have to shop a little bit more local, which is awesome, because yeah. this is fantastic coffee. Okay, so enough about coffee, though. Uh, we could talk about coffee. We, we could. We got three coffee lovers here, but uh, we're here actually to talk about the future of Squamish. And you, Karen, you want to be the person that shapes Squamish for at least the next four years, which is which is a sizable commitment. What just to start us off, broad strokes, what is your platform? What do you see as the biggest issues facing Squamish? My platform is based on three things, people, place and perspective. So the people one starts out, of course, about housing. This has been a challenge for local governments, not just in the lower mainland, but across the province. When we were just at UBCM a few weeks ago, even smaller communities than ours are struggling with this. So this is going to take more than this next council term. It's going to take years of focus and dedication. So that one for sure is, is right up there. We're growing. And one of the things that came out in the OCP engagement is people recognize that we're growing, but they don't want to lose the small town feel. And we've got some community engagement efforts coming up through the district uh, in this next term. And I think we can use it to actually connect people rather than just get feedback. So I want to do that. Jobs, we need to keep people here. I live with a commuter. It would be nice if he wasn't spending 12 hours a day uh, somewhere else. Uh, so I'm personally motivated to uh, help make that happen. And then on the play side, I think you know we've been working hard to get ahead of this growth curve for the last four years. I think most of our policies are there now in place to set a higher bar. I think we need to tweak some things a little bit more. Uh, but the big thing is, for me, I live in a multifamily development. I'm not, you know, we haven't seen the new policies uh, that were adopted in June in the OCP really come into play yet. And I want to watch those carefully because I'm still not sure we're building livable communities versus just profitable ones. Well, in terms of what, like, what would you like to see change? Urbanization is happening. More people are moving into cities. You can live in a neighborhood that's more dense, but you need to have enough personal space around you that you have a sense of privacy or that you can let your dog out or your kids out to play. You need to be not looking in your neighbor's window necessarily. So there's a sense of space and a sense of sort of keeping a human scale that makes sense for people. that They, have, they feel that they have room to breathe and still create community. We haven't really created a lot of um, gathering places in some of our multifamily developments, and we certainly don't recognize that it rains here a lot. <laughs> so nothing's covered. Um, but people still can be outside in the winter. It's just that it's generally raining. So I, I think we need to think about how people live. And so, you know, when we started our term, we were trying to uh, improve active transportation, bike trails, sidewalks. And so instead of just talking about it, we all got on our bikes and we rode around with our staff, and we met people at different places in the community, and we looked at where the problem spots were in terms of active transportation. And I think we need to do the same thing. I think we need to get out of the council's office, go around with our staff, look at what's been built, talk to the people who live there, what's working, what's not, and are we building livable communities that connect neighbors instead of create conflict between neighbors? So but, I'm, I'm still really concerned about that. But ultimately, doesn't that come down to the developer? I mean, the developer comes to you, and I mean, he, he or she has to make a project, 
that is profitable. Uh, I mean, you can ask for amenities. You, when in terms of zoning, you can ask for, I guess, some design changes in terms of density or you know how it's laid out. But ultimately, if it doesn't work for the developer, it's not going to happen. Yeah, so I think our staff are pretty smart, actually. We, I think we're punching above our weight for a small community. We put in the new OCP, it's called Universal Guidelines, which outline what a multifamily development should look like. And I think we need to keep watching that. I think it's buildable for developers. I think they need to be creative. But I think we need to stop making concessions on like driveway lengths and just acknowledge that people drive huge trucks. Or have more than one vehicle because or a lot of them are commuting, vehicle, right? Or, or that they need extra storage and that there needs to be a place for bins. You know, so one of the things we're, th- we're thinking about is does everybody in a multifamily development need a big bin or maybe we have centralized garbage? Like three bins takes up room. You could fit two bikes where your three bins go. So there's little things we can do. But I think those guidelines are a step in the right direction. We need to make sure they're working. Not everyone's going to end up in a single family home. That's just the reality. It's unreachable. Well, it's too expensive people. and we just don't have the land for it. Absolutely. So so we got to do what we can. And I think I always thought I would live in a single family home. And then I lived in Melbourne for six years and lived in inner city neighborhoods that were really dense. But we had little pocket neighborhoods and we had community gathering spaces and we had neighborhood commercial hubs. So I could walk, you know, when my kids were babies to get milk and eggs and the basic necessities. They were all, you know, my local coffee shop, my local pub. It was all within walking distance. I knew my neighbors. You know, when I went to the uh, drugstore up my street, they knew who I was. I was a local, but within my neighborhood. And I think we need to start thinking about our neighborhoods as hubs. And that's in the works. We're going to start doing neighborhood planning in the 2019 budget. Well, that said, what, what do you see happening at the oceanfront lands and by extension downtown? What would you like? I mean, ideally, what would you like to see happen there? Well, the oceanfront lands is underway. So that plan is laid out and shouldn't change from one-third park, one-third employment, one-third housing. And Newport Developments has preloaded the road. They'll start on the park. The park has to get built. They can't have occupancy for any building until the park's done. So we get that amenity right up front, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, And then we've already approved the development permit for the Clean Tech office building, which is a massive new commercial space. So I would hope that's the first thing that gets built once the road's in and and we get going. So I'm excited about that. I think when you take the development at Waterfront Landing, so Waterfront Landing's got about, I think, 50,000 square feet of commercial space. They're creating a bridge over the Mamcombe Blind Channel to connect into Victoria Avenue, I believe. Then you've got our downtown, and then you just imagine how this starts to extend down into the oceanfront. And you create this hub of commercial space, living space. I think it's exciting. And when it comes down to jobs, uh, as you, you mentioned, there, some of these projects have substantial commercial space that is going to come online. Is that, and I've asked you know, the other uh, candidates for mayor the same thing, is it a chicken and an egg thing in terms of creating more jobs in Squamish? Do we need the space first, or do we need the companies to come here, and then when they have the demand for space, it gets built? Or do you see the two just sort of developing a pace? I think they're developing a pace. So one of the things we did is create a priority um, list for what moves through our planning department fastest. And so if you're offering 100% commercial, you're moving to the front of the line. So we are trying to, to encourage people to look at building commercial space. So, so that's one thing we've done. I think we need that space built downtown. I think too many people are trying to fit what they do into the business park. And the business park really should be for light industrial and light manufacturing, it's not for retail use necessarily. So I think the faster we get it built downtown, the better. 
I'm excited that the Solterra property on the Old Pack West site, that's got a four-story entirely commercial building. Um, and I would look forward to that coming into the district and getting approved sooner rather than later. So we've done the rezoning on that. We just need DPs now. So you don't think oh, the, the industrial park and having a lot of people sell out their front door in the industrial park is necessarily a good thing? I think there's a place for it, for sure, Marcus. But where do we want people? I mean, those are tasting rooms and they're restaurants and... We also want a really vibrant downtown, which means we need office workers down there. It's a complementary use because the office workers are down there during the day, so they're the ones frequenting cafes and shops. And then they go home, and the residents who are living in a more dense downtown come home, and then they take over restaurants and, and the streetscape and eyes on the street at night. So I think we need a, a really well-built-out, vibrant downtown. And yeah, I've seen the change in downtown. I mean, it used to be you go downtown at six o'clock any day of the week, and the sidewalks were rolled up, and now you oh, yeah. there's people out. It used out. to be empty. So that's definitely changed, and I clearly it's changed because there's actually people living downtown. But then the small businesses will say, "Well, we can't afford a space." You know, if you're a craft brewery or you're a coffee house or I mean, whatever you are, you're going to go to the industrial park because that's where. That's where you're going to be able to afford space. And also because of the assessment, right? Downtown with the potential of building three or four-story buildings, their assessment is higher, so they end up paying higher taxes. For a smaller business to move in downtown might not necessarily be as feasible because their taxes have gone up from, say, 10000 a year to about 16000 a year. It was interesting. Um, when we were at UBCM, of course, it's a big conference and all the municipal elected officials from across the province come. And for three days, we just look at policy. And policy is put forward by different communities, and then the whole body votes on it. So one of the things that um, we've been talking about is that the current way BC assessment assesses like a high street is at its highest and best use, not what's currently there. And I actually think it's killing small town high streets. So yeah. Vancouver actually brought forward policy um, for the province to look at, which is changing the way BC assessment values commercial properties that are not yet built out to their full potential. We should be able to zone. So the government's saying to us, we want more density, we want more housing. But on the same hand, they have a policy that says, if you zone for a higher and better use, so like downtown, we've got C4 zonings, which is commercial, um, some office, and then residential on top. If they assess us for that, we can't keep our local shops we can't avoid possibly being taken over by just big chain stores. And then downtown becomes, you know, like a London Drugs and um, you, a Cactus Club. Can you create a bylaw to sort of bypass that? Or is that still on a provincial level? It can't really help that. We have to lobby the province to change the BC Assessment Act. And I think we can do it. I, I think the province is, is actually listening to communities now, this government, uh, to try and figure out how we create more affordable, sustainable um, housing. And, and I think this is, this is part of the solution. Of course, we're always going to be, every year, we look at our business taxes and we keep them as close to the provincial average as we can. You know, it was a tough decision last year about where to put the business taxes because we know as a whole our community is, is struggling with affordability. And even a small change in the business taxes, so lowering their taxes, has a, quite a large impact on residential. So where do you put the burden? And that's the other thing about our tax classes. So West Vancouver brought forward a policy to ask the province to give municipalities the ability to set different assessment classes. Right now, there's just one class for business. So if I give a tax break to our small business owners, I'm also giving it to Walmart and Starbucks and these big multinationals. And I'm not sure I want to do that. It would be great if I could differentiate large chain stores from my, my local business owners. I'd love to, to reduce their rate. So we are hampered a little bit by provincial policy, but 
boy, we've worked very hard at keeping our business rates competitive compared to the lower mainland. Because I always think that would be your biggest obstacle by creating a vibrant downtown, by having local companies and local shops moving in there is, is basically the tax rate. And, and yeah, you increase traffic. I mean, so you'll have to sort of measure that. You, at least maybe the increased traffic will increase sales so then they can sort of take on those taxes. But it, again, we're talking about fine balance of it's development. Fine balance. So, so yeah. we tried to come in and suggested much lower heights on Cleveland Avenue. And then all the owners went, no, no, you're taking away our development rights and you're taking away the value in our property. Well, then they got their assessment and then their taxes went up. <laughs> so what is the balance? And, and I think- Are you sure you want to be in politics? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, those, those are the complex things. There's no easy answer. There's no black and white. So, so no, I don't want to take away people's development rights. And no, I don't want to reduce the value of their property. But at the but. same time, I understand that they're also struggling with, you know, keeping tenants that can pay the rents and keep up. And so where's the solution? And I think our council has been very good at getting our staff out there, getting councillors out there and listening and trying to engage in the conversation. And you know, that will be a priority of mine. We can't step back from engagement. We have to keep leaning into these conversations um, and finding finding the solution. The, it's not the, always easy. The other big challenge you, you'd be facing as mayor is amenities. We're looking at, I the number I originally heard was $100 million. And we talked to Susan Chappelle the other night, and she's saying $200 million. We're, you know, Brendan Park, uh, a community arts center, all these projects. Where is that money going to come from? Yeah, so I've said this before. The real estate and facilities strategy that are that we've been working on this term is probably one of the biggest tasks of this next council. And 75% of our buildings are more than 25 years old. Almost 50% are at end of life. It, it's not that they're going to fall down. It's just that every dollar we now put into maintaining them is really not value for money. It's $90 million plus. I don't know where the $200 million comes from. Uh, I suppose if we re like tore down Brennan Park and built it from scratch, I know in engagement that was probably about a ninety million dollar uh, proposition, and that didn't even include reclaiming the land and cleaning it up and making it usable again. So perhaps that's what Councillor right. Chappelle was okay. was using the the highest. What most people voted on in the community was uh, refurbishing and and building onto what we already have, so that we can continue to use it while we're refurbishing it. Um, but staff have laid out options. We can. And certainly the idea of partnerships, leasing space, Vancouver Coastal Health, you know, they need a new ambulatory care center. So what if we, you know, is there a way to partner and bring that in? Is the school district interested in, in taking some space? I know people have talked about putting housing, like using the airspace. And right now that whole Brennan Park area is a sponsored crown grant. So there's restrictions on that. We would have to go back to the province and change them. So that's a negotiation. So right now it can only be used for specified uses. And if we want to change that, that's a negotiation with the province. Because you're talking about building neighborhood hubs, right? So yeah. you know, central areas and, and communal areas and, and parks and stuff, and that's all amenities, right? So it's, it's trying to find the funding to create these hubs while maintaining short end of amenities that we currently have. So I, that would mean you have to get more out of developers. That would mean, what would, where would you find the funding for that sort of project? Well, the good thing is, and why I'm really glad we have this plan, is that there's a whole bunch of infrastructure money um, and the province just announced some new money for recreation centers and cultural centers uh, two weeks ago at UBCM. And we've done our homework. So the thing is, you need to be ready as a community with shovel-ready projects. So when these infrastructure grants come out, you can say, yep, we've got a project. It's defined. We know how much it costs. We know where it's going. Um, and here we go. We've done the homework, and that'll be the biggest bonus to this next council is that they don't have to think about it. It's done. The numbers are there. So that's one way. 
leasing space, looking at putting housing on top. We've got, we have land assets and the challenge is do you keep them or do you sell them? Do you partner with someone and develop them? So we, Kitty Corner to Brennan Park is the old Forest Services building. That's our land as well. What's a hub we imagine for that area and how do we leverage that piece of land? So I, th I think we do have options. It, there won't be easy choices. We can't build everything at once. You know, staff have laid out what they feel are our top five. What are those top five? Fire Hall, Operations Center, Municipal Hall. And I know no one likes to think about politicians and bureaucrats getting a new building, but that building is atrocious and it needs, it needs a solution. I've been in there a fair amount of times. It's, 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 it's it, yeah, raggedy. It's, it's raggedy. <laughs> and I, I don't think anyone's talking about wanting to build a Taj Mahal, but it, it no longer reflects who we are as a community. I mean, it looks pretty bad. So that's on the list. And Brennan Park is at overcapacity. So, and it's just, it's age. So it's not bad, but we do need better change rooms. We do need a concourse where parents can enjoy beverage and watch the hockey game. Uh, so we have some work to do. Do you see Municipal Hall and Brennan Park, as I, and this has been talked about for a very long time, doing that project together, having Municipal Hall at Brennan Park as part of the redevelopment, or do you see it as a separate project? I've always imagined Municipal Hall staying downtown. And one of the reasons is, is that a lot of people work out of there, and so it's part of having employment downtown and having people out there at lunchtime. And our staff are generators, you know, participate in the economy because they go up for lunch because they they are there downtown so that's my preference we can't take it off the table if it makes more financial sense if we can move faster to put things together then we need to consider that so my preference is to try and keep it downtown but you can't be picky when you've got a 90 million dollar deficit so that you're you're staring at and and needs to be addressed in the next 10 to 15 years Another amenity, and I know this is this is a low priority, but there is a demand for it, and it's been again, it's a project that's been talked about for years and years. Is an arts building, both a visual arts building and a performing arts building. Squamish has uh, an incredibly vibrant arts community, but they struggle for space. And I know Brackendale Art Gallery. There's been talk about the district taking that over. That's that may not be practical. Is that something that just has to go on the back burner, or is there? Do you see any solution there for a community arts building, whether it's the Brackendale Art Gallery or a purpose-built building downtown or someplace else? I think the fact that the mayor is stepping down, uh, the silver lining to that is that we now have a significant arts advocate out in the community. She has been a driver of the arts over the last four years. I know that she's personally committed to getting an arts center built. And that's what it's going to take. It's going to take community partnership and some funding from outside sources. So I don't think it has to go to the bottom of the priority list, but I think it's going to be community driven. And uh, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if the mayor showed up in council with some ideas, you know, in the new year. Could it be the Brackendale Art Gallery or do you see that as not being practical? I don't know what the arts community is imagining for this center. I know that they want maker space. They want performance space. They want recording space. So... I do think we need a theater of some sort, a performance theater, and where that goes. But could you use the, the bag? I, I think there's great potential in that quirky, lovely, historic building. But I think it needs to be community-driven, and the District of Squamish has a role to play in, in terms of possible funding or looking at what fees we can waive to make things possible. But uh, while I'm a supporter of the arts, and we've got all these other buildings that need our attention, you know, I've already been really clear with the arts community. We're happy to help you where we can. We're happy to be at the table. We're happy to drive some of this. But the initiative, I think, for a new arts center is going to need to come from the community. What about, and just to get back to jobs for a second, we met with 
Rod McLeod from Garibaldi Squamish. And of course, now they're making, that, as you well know, that's been a long gestating project. It's been going on for decades now. It does seem to be coming to a head again. It seems like they're optimistic that they might be able to move forward again. Where do you stand on that project? Yeah, Garibaldi Squamish has been on the radar since uh, I was elected to council. I went through the environmental assessment process. And I think it's one of those issues that our community needs to consider very carefully. And there are certainly benefits to the project, but we should also be very vigilant about what it could mean for our community. And I think we need to consider that carefully. Uh, we put a very strongly worded uh, letter into the province during the EA process about our concerns about their water needs and where it's coming from, about the highway infrastructure. We already get huge log jams on busy weekends on that highway. That one traffic light. That one Britannia traffic Beach. Light. Yeah. <laughs> so we've said to the province, you're kind of going to need a, a go around. Like we can't have that keep happening. So the traffic in infrastructure, uh, people talk about it creating jobs. We can't find enough people to fill the jobs we have in Squamish. And where are these people living that will be required to build out that project? It's all fine and good to say it'll create construction jobs. As far as I know, there's lots of construction jobs right now in Squamish and more to come as we build out Waterfront and, and the SOVC. But where are these people going to live that are coming to build this community? And will they have housing up there? You know, they need a community to negotiate with on their master planning agreement. And I think right now that, that proposal is sitting at something like 22,500 bed units. On the final phase, yeah. On the final phase. But is that what our community wants? Maybe our community would rather see something that's 10,000 or 9,000. So are you seeing when it comes to the point where, where you're going to adopt the land from the SLRD to make it District of Squamish, are you looking at possibly putting forward a referendum? Oh, Marcus, I have Sorry. such a love-hate relationship <laughs> with referendums. I mean, because you were asking about Squamish, right? You're asking about how the people affected if they want to take this on, if it's something that they want to be a part of. I mean, then, uh, you know, because the Garibaldi Squamish, you have answers for all of what you've just said, because we've interviewed them yesterday. Um, and they said, you know, we'll have our own aquifers, we have this, we'll have housing, we have this. And, and you know, they, they make it sound like it's the best thing ever, of yeah. course, because that's what they will do. And, and for you, you're saying it's a concern for the district and for the people. So will you put it to the people is what I'm saying with referendum or something of the sort. What I think is required is not just marketing by Garibaldi at Squamish, but engagement by the District of Squamish with our community so that they understand what it means for us to expand our boundaries and take that in. It has to go through so many steps. Not only would it require Squamish's agreement to do that, but that is a change to the regional growth strategy with the SLRD. So there's many, many steps to this process and lots of opportunity to engage the community. The problem with referendums on really complex issues like this one is that sometimes people stop a little bit early on their analysis with their yes or no. So I think we're going to need to be really careful with how we communicate with the community that they are with us as we move through this process of decision making. I think because the engagement is higher when it comes down to a referendum than you would say having a meeting here or there because it, that was one of the things about the OCP is that you'll have certain people show up for certain meetings or whatever, like the Garibaldi Springs, for example, you had certain people show up at certain times and didn't really get a full reflection of what the community felt about a certain project. If you put it to a referendum, it's one of those things where people actually have to come out and vote for it, right? And I think, hopefully, people are responsible enough to do their due diligence and their homework before they go out and vote. I hope so. I think sometimes, too, and is that referendums can divide people. So that's why, so to say, I have a love-hate relationship with them. I think it's democracy in action when we put decisions in the hands of the people. But I also think, done incorrectly, it, it can divide a community, and you end up with pro and, and against. 
And and for a community our size, that's not healthy. Well, social media is already like that. <laughs> yeah, it's and there's lots like, of we, articles. We don't really need to encourage it. We don't no, need to encourage, it, need to encourage it. I don't think we need to be part of it. So, <laughs> so what's the conversation we need to have and how do we need to have it and what's the right. best way to get community input and show both sides of, of the debate. And I think that was the hard part when, when wood fiber came through is what was our role? This was a provincial initiative. This was an... You know, multinational company that came in. What's our role in educating the public in when these types of projects come along? And I think we learned from that experience that that actually our public expect us to take a role, not necessarily to influence decision making, but to put the facts on the table from our perspective. Well, since you bring up wood fiber LNG, I'll use that as a segue to ask you, what is your position on wood fiber LNG? Now, before you answer, Paul, Lau, you're two of your uh, competitors for the mayor's chair, Paul Lally and Susan Chappelle, both come out in their platform saying they are best equipped to negotiate a tax deal. So does Jeff. Jeff says the same thing. So Yeah, I think they all said that. Yeah. yeah. I, pretty I, much I wasn't I well, apologies to Jeff. I wasn't entirely sure if that was actually officially in his platform, but they they've all three said that they're best equipped to negotiate a tax deal with the province and wood fiber LNG. What so what would be your position on it? Wood fiber wants a tax agreement because they want certainty over the long term. So in offering certainty, there's a premium that comes with that. Um, so whether that's cash up front, community amenities, the, but there's a cost to getting certainty, and that's what they want. They want long-term certainty. As a district, we also have to think. So with large industrial projects, depreciation comes into this. So often they pay less tax over time as the depreciation of, of their infrastructure kicks in. So there's lots of things at play. We have money set aside in our budget. It's been sitting there waiting for wood fiber to be ready to negotiate, to hire consultants, to work with us, to make sure that we are negotiating the best deal. So people with experience in the industry that know what a fair deal will look like. I don't think any of the people running for mayor are experts in this industry, so a little outside guidance will be helpful. We've also said to wood fiber that we would really like to know what BC assessment thinks their infrastructure should be worth. They've been working on their drawings for a number of years now. We should have a better sense than what we did at the beginning of the term about how big this infrastructure is, what it looks like, and, and we need to base it on those kinds of facts. So no one person is gonna negotiate this deal. This will be primarily our staff at the table with some consultants backing them up. Decision-making and direction will come from, from council for sure, but that's gonna be a decision of seven people, not just the mayor. So this is going to be a collaborative effort, but every single one of us should be focused on making sure they're meeting a high bar. This industry gets a lot of subsidies from the province and from the federal government. I don't think they need subsidies from a municipal government. Well, I've heard numbers as high. Now, Wood Fiber provided $2 million plus dollars a year in revenue to the district, and it's something that's never been replaced. Uh, I've heard numbers as high as $5 million for even fiber seven. Even seven. Five yeah. to seven actually was yeah. something that we had in initial conversations with BC Assessment, kind of as a like a sort of finger in ballpark. the air kind of ballpark. Yeah. And that's why we've sort of said, like, we need, we, BC Assessment's got to give us another closer ballpark once they've seen drawings. But this is the thing. It's new for everybody. There's no other LNG plant in BC that they're, they're assessing. So, so it, this, is, this is new for everybody. So, you know, I will take a cautious approach, but I have set a high bar for this industry. Um, I believe they should work hard for what they want, and um, I'll hold them to that. 
Okay, moving back to housing for a second, uh, one thing that I want to touch on, we, we sort of went past it, was you, you brought up, when I brought up Garibaldi Squamish, you were talking about housing for the people. Of course, housing, as you've said, it's a huge concern just in general. In fact, for the entire corridor it is. They're even talking now in Vancouver of adopting a Whistler-style employee housing plan, and I know it's been talked about in Squamish for a number of years. Uh, the current mayor, Patricia Heinzman, talked about it. How do you feel about that? Do you think it's workable? Can we learn something from what Whistler's done right or wrong and go from there? So this is another chicken and egg scenario. So you don't need a housing authority until you have the units to manage. We don't have the units to manage yet. <laughs> okay, uh, but true, but we... So we are working on it, Alan, and uh, we, this council will probably... This next council, whoever is elected and is sworn in on November 6th, will probably get a report early in the new year on options for how we are going to manage this housing. So we've got the Buckley Avenue project going on. If we're successful in getting that funding, that's 76 units that will co be coming on stream. And before we uh, go forward with that, we need to know how we're going to manage affordable rental housing in our community. I think we do need to work with the Chamber of Commerce and some of our other businesses on a workforce strategy, like a workforce housing strategy. Uh, and I think we need to look at, and we've already sort of given staff a heads up for this, is how do we employ uh, locals' first buying option in new developments? So this is why I believe we should be um, incorporated into the foreign buyers tax that they've implemented in Lower Mainland and some other areas, left Squamish out. Housing here in Squamish should be for Squamish people. And I think we need to figure out how we can offer housing to people in each new development that live here first not for outsiders. Okay, but so just to summarize, you are in favor of a Whistler style. We know clearly the units haven't been built yet, but one of the major things, Whistler didn't build a lot of uh, affordable rental housing. They built housing for sale for employees that wasn't in the free market. It would Well, they had a few different formulas about how that would, housing would be valued. Uh, I think most of it was indexed to, to inflation. And so developers build it, it's offered to local employees at below market price, yep. but then they buy it and they find out, and this, is, this has been one of the problems ongoing in Whistler is that these people buy it, and then they, but then they find, and they, they love having a home, but then they find out 10 years later, they can't sell it for the inflated real estate price that maybe their friends and neighbors are getting for houses bought in the free market. So, I, I mean, I have my own opinions on it, but what do you think about that? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Do people just have to say, you know, be realized this is what you get if you want to buy affordable housing? There's a bit of give and take, for sure. And I don't know what the right model will be, Alan, at this point. I think the great thing about the Whistler Housing Authority is they've done things, some things right, and some things haven't worked out the way they had imagined. So there's a lot to learn from their experience. And uh, I think we can draw on that as we make our decision about what is the model that works best for Squamish. So I'm keeping my, my mind open at this point uh, to what that will look like, but I know it will be a decision in front of council early in 2019. Okay, and then just is the economy on a you know, big picture. We've always been talking about tech rec. That, this, that's sort of been the big thing. Tech rec, tech rec, tech rec. That's the future of Squamish. What is tech rec in your mind? Is it rec tech? I thought it was rec tech. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was rec tech. Does it really matter that much? <laughs> Recreational technology. It. Rec tech. <laughs> Not technology recreation. It's the other way around. <laughs> you need more coffee. Yeah, we, we should get Sean back. <laughs> I'm all for it. That was a great coffee. Um, we can't pin our economy on one sector of, of industry. So rec tech absolutely has a place here, and I think that's one of the biggest reasons to protect our brand and protect what makes Squamish special, because 
it won't make sense for the blurs and the seven meshes of the world to live here if we start looking like West Vancouver and North Vancouver. So, you know, it's, we got to protect the assets we have and, and the idea that we've got mountain bike trails out there and you can go kite surfing and, you know, we're a hub of recreation. If, if we lose that, you know, I'm not sure they will think that this is the coolest place to be. So let's make it make sense for the pink bikes and all those guys. You know, we have an engineering firm here that just got a contract with NASA. So there's ex other exciting things going on. We have a whole hub down at the oceanfront that's going to be based on clean tech uh, industries. So that's exciting. We already have that with an anchor in, in carbon engineering. So I don't think it needs to be about rec tech. I don't think it needs to be just about tourism. I think it can be about software. It can be about design. It can be about about value-added manufacturing around wood products. So I, I think there's a lot of potential to exploit. I'm just not sure that we have set the table with all the tools they need. And I think that is the role of the district in economic development, is to make sure that the table looks attractive to those people, both people living here and, uh, and those that might be looking from the outside. So, you know, I've talked to some small business owners. Uh, they said, you know, if you have more than 15 employees, you can't get the bandwidth to get everyone on the internet and wired up and, and working efficiently. So, you know, you look at New West, they've got a whole fiber uh, strategy and they're like known as the digital community. So we need to learn from communities like that to figure out how we get that fiber to where our businesses need it. So, you know, I, I think we are missing maybe a fork and a spoon, and, and we have an economic development group now that is working in partnership with community partners. I think that uh, our staff have been very clear about what our role is in economic development and asking our community partners to step up and also fulfill their role in, in economic development. I don't think the answer is just bringing in people from the outside. There is so much brain trust here that is driving to the city every day, my husband included. I want those entrepreneurial-minded people to see that they have the space and the support to make a go of it here, to maybe bring their ideas and stay at home and start them here. So the space is coming. I think we can do more from an infrastructure standpoint at the district to help them out, but I don't think the answer is in going out and bringing in an Amazon or a trolling the world for rec tech companies. You're asking people to pick up from where they already live and move here. That's a big ask. Mm -hmm. The people that already live here already love it here. So can we help them grow faster and stronger and thrive? Yeah, I think we can. Right. Now, in the meantime, your husband's a commuter, as are a lot of other um, Squamish citizens. They're either going, mainly I guess they're going to Vancouver. A lot of them are still going to Whistler. Probably more are going to be commuting to Whistler because Whistler's just plain run out. We think we're low on room. They plain run out of room to house employees. Jack Crompton, the new mayor of Whistler, he, he ran on a post, so he's acclaimed. He is a breath of fresh air, I guess, in terms of transportation, because he seems like, or he said that he's willing to work with Squamish on a regional transportation strategy. Have you given that any thought? What, what would that look like, and how could we impl implement a commuter uh, strategy? Because, I mean, those people, yeah, we want people working in Squamish, but that's not going to happen overnight. In the meantime, we, we need some sort of transportation. I, d I just want to sort of, it, you kind of make it sound like Whistler, you know, has been late to the table. And, and maybe they have been a little bit late, but they do recognize well, the they're, need they're for... Well, they're the ones who sort of canceled the program to begin with. They did cancel the program to begin with. But when, when we went to the province a few years ago and said, we need regional transit in this, in this district, the province said, come back and talk to us when you've got an MOU with everybody in the corridor. That was what we walked away with. So we couldn't go back to the province until we had that. So we now have all the partners on board, and I think Jack will be a champion of regional transit. 
I think they get it that this is about equity and access to jobs no matter where you live in the corridor. So we met with the minister at UBCM, all the regional partners. I wasn't at that meeting. The mayors um, were at that meeting along with our staff. We do have an MOU in place. We have uh, a management structure that's been drafted. We are now negotiating the funding split. So right now with BC Transit, we split it 50-50. And that's not sustainable for the small communities and the two First Nations that are part of this, this MOU. So we are negotiating that. The province has said they're willing to use, we'll look at using the carbon tax funding as as potential model for regional transit. There's a gas tax. We already pay the same prices as the lower mainland, but we don't have the gas tax here. It's also making those those gas stations not lop on extra money because of it, because you can't guarantee them not raising prices because of it at all. It takes a lot of political courage, both on the province's part and local government part, to implement a tax. So maybe isn't the, the first choice of solutions. So the goal is still September 2019 to have regional transit in place. We're working. So that's the reason I think that you need a mayor that has been part of these conversations because we can't lose momentum on some of these projects where, where those deadlines are in the next year. We don't have time for a, a learning curve. We need people that can lead who can keep these conversations going. Regional transit is a necessity and, and we need to keep driving to that 2019, that September 2019 date. I think private operators will still have a role to play in how people move around. Papa Ride has been, we're one of the busiest corridors for Papa Ride riders in the province, and I think that will continue. So I think it's going to be a, a mixture of solutions, but regional transit's definitely part of it. Well, you're talking about keeping the conversation going and having people on council with a sharp learning curve. I mean, if you're elected mayor, you're going to have a brand new council with maybe Doug Race if he gets reelected. So if you're talking about sharp learning curve and keeping the momentum going, that's going to be a challenge in itself, getting everyone caught up. It is, and I know how to do it. I did it last time, and I probably learned more in four years than most counselors learn in three terms. Um, we, we tackled a lot, a lot of policy work, a lot of development work, um, and some major developments, finishing off the SODC, seeing Chikai through to third reading so that they could start on their design, uh, doing the OCP. I know how I got up to speed. I know how I can help these counselors get up to speed. I think hopefully the community is wise enough to see Doug Race as probably a a person they would want there in the chair uh, helping out uh, new councillors. But I think with, with that experience in the mayor's chair, there's a pretty fast learning curve. Certainly, Patty was instrumental in helping me become an effective councillor. And I've been sitting down with as many of the candidates as possible and sharing with them what it's like to be a councillor, how they can be effective, um, and I'll keep doing that. Wh- whether I'm in the mayor ch- mayor's chair or not, if I can help some of these, these new councillors get up to speed, I will. We have a lot to do. We have some big issues to tackle. We have some huge opportunities to go after. Because we can see fresh faces across the board. Absolutely. It's a possibility. That is a possibility. I hope that doesn't happen. Well, it's it's going to happen. I mean, at, at the very most, you're going to get Doug Race in there. Hopefully myself. Well, I'm in on council. Present company excuse. Tough crowd here. Um, the, the great thing about our community is that people help. I had been living here for 18 months when I was elected. So you know what? You go out and you talk to the people. And people have sat on council before. Um, they're generous. They tell you what you need to know. You get perspective quickly. But the other thing is, too, and the reason that I think I was elected is because I do bring a different perspective. I, I haven't lived here forever. I have lived. I've lived in one of the most livable cities in the world. I understand how density and livability can coexist. 
I've always been a big city girl, but I love this place. And, and I don't want to see it just become a bedroom community. I want it to keep its identity and it's what makes it special. I want, when people say the word Squamish, it doesn't feel like a suburb. I want it to always feel like a city in its own right. Um, and I want to work really hard to make sure that happens. We have a brand new OCP with some really progressive policy in it. And this next council will get a chance at reframing the zoning bylaw to match with that new progressive policy and make things happen. So on some of those, those things might take a little bit longer. On regional transit, it's been the mayor and staff involved in those conversations. And so I can drive those forward. Well, with that, I think we've got to wrap it up. Yeah. Where, where can we people find more information? Your website, email, all that sort of stuff. Yep. Email is I'm with Karen at gmail.com. Happy to answer any questions. The website is also I'm with Karen.com and uh, all my platforms up there and a little bit more about me and my professional background. So invite people to do that. And I'll be at all the all candidates meetings. I'll be out and about and I encourage people just to stop me on the street and ask me questions. I'm happy to do that, even when I'm grocery shopping. The all candidates meeting, the first one's coming up Monday, yep. September 24th. The next one I believe is the- Wednesday. 26th. And then October 1st? Yeah, the following Monday. Monday, Wednesday, Monday. Yeah, before the advance voting on October 10th. And then you can advance vote October 10th at, is it Brennan Park? No, 55. Oh, it's the 55 plus activity center in the Eagleton complex. And then, of course, if you don't come out October 20th to Brennan Park and vote, remember, you can't complain. Indeed. So I want to thank Karen Elliott again for coming on. Thanks, guys. It's been fun. This is the Sea to Sky podcast. If you have a comment or story ideas, please check out our website at seataskypodcast.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Sea to Sky podcast. Thank you for clicking us on. 